uh, C.S. Lewis had written something along the lines of, when you find that you're off track, the best thing to do is to go back to the last time that you knew you were on the right path and then get back on the right path. This podcast is brought to you by BJU Press Homeschool. Homeschooling is an exciting adventure we take with our children. One of the most challenging parts of this journey is choosing the curriculum you want to use. BJU Press Homeschool is a curriculum you can trust. All the books, resources, and videos have been designed with you and your child in mind. Their curriculum is educationally robust and rich, taking into account that children have different learning styles, strengths, and needs. Mom, you are in charge. BJU Press Homeschool is here to come alongside and support you. Do you need help with the teaching load or is there a subject you just don't want to teach? Their amazing video courses are available for all grades and almost every subject. BJU Press Homeschool believes that homeschooling can produce a new generation of students who know God, love their neighbors, and stand firm in their faith. For more information, go to BJUPressHomeschool.com. That's BJUPressHomeschool.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Zan Tyler Podcast. I'm your host, Zan Tyler. Let me take just a minute to ask you to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. And if this podcast has been encouraging to you, please leave us a review. Each review really helps us. I also want to remind you that we are on YouTube now, so you can see the interviews that I have with our amazing guests. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram, where we also post interesting content. I'm excited to have Jim Mason as our guest today. Jim became the president of HSLDA in 2022 after serving as vice president of litigation and development for seven years. He's also a very talented and creative writer and has penned many of the most popular articles in Homeschool Legal Defense's Homeschool Court Report magazine. Jim also serves as a board chairman of parentalrights.org. Jim and his wife, Debbie, live in Stevenson, Virginia. They have seven children and four grandchildren. The Masons homeschooled all of their children through high school. In his spare time, Jim is an avid bird watcher. I think you will really enjoy Jim's story of how he ended up becoming a lawyer and eventually became a lawyer with Homeschool Legal Defense Association. His work at HSLDA is a calling and a mission for Jim, and he is devoted to serving homeschooling families across the country. Welcome, Jim. Well, today... I'm so honored to have Jim Mason with us. Jim is the new president of Homeschool Legal Defense Association, and HSLDA is now celebrating their 40th anniversary, which is hard for me to believe. So, Jim, thank you so much for being here, and welcome. Well, thank you, Zan. It's my pleasure. And uh, so first, before we start talking about the homeschooling world, tell us how you and your wife, Debbie, decided to homeschool. So Debbie and I, um, when we were engaged, um, Debbie told us that we were going to homeschool when we had kids. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. That's a good way yeah. to start. So I mean, there was very little decision making process in my in my uh, head or on my part. But truly, she she said that she so she she had gone to school and was a certified public school teacher. And by the time we got engaged, she was actually um, teaching and coaching at a community college um, in our state of Oregon when when we first got uh, engaged. And she just expressed a very strong desire to, if we had kids or when we had kids, uh, to be able to raise them up 
outside of the public school and and be able to you know really uh, raise them in our Christian faith. And so I honestly had never really thought about homeschooling. I don't know that I had ever heard of homeschooling. I was a single guy and I'd worked in kind of, you know, the military and trucking companies and construction. And it just wasn't something that I thought about or talked about with anyone ever. And so I was a little, you know, dubious about it. Um, Grew up in the public schools and um, just didn't really... Hadn't given it much thought, but she said she expressed a really strong desire. And so over the next few years, um, I started looking into it. And I think I got sold on the idea for two reasons. There were two critical things. Um, when we were engaged, um, we were in a, so I had been in a Bible study and then we got married and she joined the Bible study and we had been praying for this couple who worked for an engineering company and they were off in um, Cairo for a prolonged period with their family. And so we were praying for this couple and and at that time, I think two children. And um, when they came back and joined the Bible study, Debbie and I by that time were married and they homeschooled. Uh, and so they were the first homeschooling family that I ever encountered. And their oldest daughter, whose name is Leah, Leah Garber, um, was, I think, seven at the time. And so oh, so we... that was Leah Garber's family. Oh, oh that's you, interesting. You just, yeah. So <laughs> so um, that was a really big influence on me when, you know, and, and we had um, our first child about a year after they came back from Egypt, I think, and... Uh, just getting to know them and seeing up close and personal and getting to know, you know, watching how their children were um, developing and just the, the sweet spirit. And you know, Leah Garber, Leah Garber. Yeah, I know uh, Leah. So, so John and Olga Garber uh, were really close friends of ours in Oregon. They moved to Virginia. Um, then I went to law school and they were instrumental actually in introducing me to Mike Ferris to help me get this job. And Leah who who was seven when I met her has worked at HSLDA longer than I have. <laughs> so she was already working here. Um, and she's now our uh, director of membership something. Um, she's a pretty, she's a pretty high up person here now. <laughs> she's, um, she, she could have probably started working there when she was 12. She's such a bright, articulate <laughs> person. Yeah, she is. And, and she's, she's really one of our key, key people here. Um, and the second thing that really helped me was, when our oldest child, Luke, was maybe four, uh, Debbie signed us up for a program called The Writing Road to Reading. Now, I'll never forget it. So I took a couple of days I off did from work. That. You, you, you did it? Yes, I did. Wow. That. <laughs> yes. Well, so she, she roped me into it. Um, I mean, I was really excited to go. And we went to this, this seminar, uh, I think it was two or three days. And it just was so, um, such a, a, an exciting and attractive way to teach kids that, that really, I was really sold on it. So by the time Luke was ready to start learning to read, um, we'd had a, you know, I had a, 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 an actual teacher who, uh, had, um, done this further training and it just was a natural fit for us. So how many kids do y'all have in all? We have seven children. Um, they are all grown up now. Our youngest child, Abby, is 20 years old and is up to college. 
boy, can you believe how the time flies? It just I, I, flies. It just flies by. So um, earlier this week, my oldest son, his wife just had their fourth child. So as soon as I, I don't, I don't want to cut the podcast short in any way. So don't, don't, you know, <laughs> don't worry. But as soon as I'm done with you, I'm getting in the car and driving down to uh, about three hours from here to visit my new grandson, Teddy. Oh, man, that is awesome. Well, I well, I do feel a little bit bad that this kept you from going earlier this morning. But thank you for being here, especially. Because, thank you. <laughs> but, you know, if just when you when you when I need a favor from you next time, just remember that. I will. I will. You call anytime. Um, so, Jim, one of my favorite memories with you and Debbie was when we were at a national conference right. and you, you and Debbie and Joe and I and the Smiths from Louisiana and the Thorntons from Tennessee ended up having a big dinner together one night. I mean, just in a rest, some restaurant, nondescript rest, restaurant somewhere. I have never laughed so hard in my life. Um, it was so much fun, but we also had some great serious discussion. And uh, Mike Ferris had already told me that you had a real life before you became an interesting life before you became a lawyer. Not that being a lawyer is not interesting, but tell us a little bit about what you did before you became a lawyer and then how you got into the law. Okay. I was, uh, I went to college at Oregon State University and uh, I had a, a Naval ROTC scholarship. So uh, after college, I spent four years on active duty as an officer in the Navy in San Diego on a ship. Um, I became a Christian while I was at college, and I think I was 20 years old. I made a profession of faith, um, was, I was baptized in the Willamette River, and um, kind of got on track until I graduated from college. And then I went off uh, to the Navy and sort of I didn't. I didn't uh, ever abandon the faith or ever think I was not a Christian, but I didn't live according to um, the things I knew I should, and so um, I kind of gradually drifted away from the faith and church, and always in the back of my mind, knowing that it wasn't a good path that I'd chosen. Um, after so on active duty, I uh, uh, after active duty, I. Uh, got a job with a uh, Fortune 500 company, and I was in an operations management track, and um, started started in that in that direction. After a couple of years, that just really wasn't working out. And the uh, most, I mean, from a job perspective, it was, but from a faith perspective, it was not. And I felt very strongly that uh, um, I needed to get my life back on track. And in the process, it just became clear to me that uh, I'd read. I'm not going to be able to quote it, but uh, C.S. Lewis had written something along the lines of, you know, when you find that you're off track, um, the best thing to do is to go back to the last time that you knew you were on the right path and and then get back on the right path. So a man who was very influential in um, leading me to um, the Lord in the first place lived back in where I went to college, and he was he was actually uh, one of my military advisors when I was in the ROTC program, and we had become friends. Um, we had uh, uh, he had he and his wife had had you know really opened their their home to me, and I got to know their their young children, and so I moved back there to be close to them to try to get back on track, and weirdly, 
they were very close friends with a person named Debbie Strom, who <laughs> eventually, eventually played a, a significant role in my life. Um, and so because I was trying to get back on track, um, my whole focus, my whole purpose was to find my way back. And, you know, and the Lord led me through some different things. I, um, I had a cover story. My cover story was, I'm going to quit this job. It was a great job with a good company, you know, a good future, um, and go back to, to, uh, Oregon state to get my MBA. Cause that's the ticket. I'll get an MBA. And that was a good cover story because, you know, people don't, people in my circles wouldn't have understood why I was uh, really doing it, but getting an MBA made some sense. So I took uh, classes, oh, about right up to the date when you had to withdraw um, or, you know, you could get some money back if you didn't, if you withdrew. And I just got to the point of, I'm not here to get an MBA. I'm here to get back on the path. And so I pulled out of school and um, got a job stacking Christmas trees on the side of, uh, Mary's, <laughs> Mary's peak in the uh, coast range. Um, just really, really started over. Uh, I was, I was, uh, really a joyful time. It was kind of weird because I was, you know, out working, um, in the woods in Western Oregon and those in that time of year, it's very, um, wet and cold and, uh, I was working at the holiday tree farm, which was the biggest tree Christmas tree plantation in the world at the time. So it was a big operation. And, uh, eventually Christmas season was over and a guy at the church had a, had a three by five card on the bulletin board looking for a construction laborer. I, I don't know anything about construction. Um, but so I pulled the card off the bulletin board and ended up, uh, framing houses and putting up cedar siding for the next three and a half years. And that was the season in which Debbie and I got married and we had our first kid while I was still a carpenter. Um, then after that, uh, with one child and, uh, in those days, the, uh, housing market and timber market, you know, weren't very strong. And so I needed a better job to support my family. And so the way I usually tell the story is, um, I spent a year in jail, followed by a year on house arrest, followed by five years on probation. Um, <laughs> which is true enough. I uh, I was looking for just about any kind of job that would um, be better, you know, I'd be better able to support my family. And and uh, the first job that that I got was with the sheriff's department, and uh, went to jail for a year. <laughs> so. And I guess I was, so I was a, I was a parole and probation officer. And in 1991 or 1990, uh, when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, the Navy decided it needed my services again. I was still in the reserves and, uh, I went to the Middle East and, uh, I had a pretty exciting job. It was, it was fun. It was kind of behind the, you know, what, I wasn't a combatant. I was in logistics and I was, uh, I traveled all around the United Arab Emirates and Qatar and, Bahrain and Saudi Arabia as a liaison officer with local port officials. And I guess the way it always has seemed to me is um, we had a good life where we were um, plugged into our community, our church. I had a job that was interesting and fun and um, in a smaller you know town. But when I came back from the Middle East after the uh, after I was released from active duty, just really felt like the Lord was 
wanting me to look at bigger horizons. That eventually led to discovering uh, Regent University um, and its law school there, which rekindled kind of a lifelong interest in going to law school. So we we went off to law school with our three kids, <laughs> and our fourth child was born uh, the year I graduated from law school. Um, so, Jim, you have been on all sides of the law. I mean, you've been <laughs> you've been the person who could take homeschoolers to jail if you wanted to, and now you're the person who keeps homeschoolers out of jail. <laughs> yeah, so I was never a peace officer. I did work um, as a parole and probation officer, though I did work an awful lot with um, with CPS um, during that, you know, was where we had mutual uh, people that we were supervising. And that gives you such an understanding, I mean, that gave you such an innate understanding of CPS in a lot of ways that other people may never have. Yeah. So, so now, so you went to law school, did you go to work immediately for HSLDA? No. When you graduated? So, um, so this is, this is an, this is a, a another, <laughs> another aspect of this story. I, you know, was, so I was working as a parole and probation officer and the uh, this opportunity to go to law school kind of appeared and some really interesting amazing things happened to make it possible for us to go um and i and i told people at the time that yeah i, I want to go back to law school so that i can go to work for this outfit out in peonian springs virginia that helps homeschoolers and we had we had you know started getting hsl days materials and reading about the cases i remember one time uh I used to i used to be fit and trim and worked out every day and I was working out with the elected district attorney in our county, and he was also a Navy Reserve officer. And I was telling him about this, and he said, look, one thing the world doesn't need is more lawyers, but it, it especially doesn't need any more crackpot lawyers, <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> so if you're going to be a lawyer, be a prosecutor. <laughs> uh, so I, um, I wrote Mike Ferris a letter <laughs> at the time, and I said, Hey, great news. Uh, I've been accepted to Regent University School of Law. And when I get done, I'm going to be ready to come work for you to save the world for homeschool freedom. <laughs> and he, he wrote me back a really polite letter that said, look, you know, he, he basically agreed with the DA. It was like, you know, there's not very many lawyers that can do this work. So maybe you should keep your day job. Um, so then when I graduated, I wrote another letter. And this time I got a response from Mike Smith. And he said, oh, well, good, good job. Great. You know, he did well in law school. And um, unfortunately, we still don't have a job for you. So I went off, uh, clerked for an appellate court. And then I went to work for the General Counsel of National Right to Life Committee and worked in kind of a free speech uh, uh, practice for, I think, three and a half years with him. And that brings Leah Garber back into the story because... They had since moved to Virginia, and they were going to the same, you know, so Leah was working here, and they went to the same church as Mike Paris. So one day, uh, while we were, they were on vacation, they stopped at our house in Indiana where I was working for the uh, National Right to Life Committee guy, and we started talking about it. I said, yeah, I'd still love to, but, you know, they just keep telling me no, so I guess, you know, HSLDA is never, never going to happen. But I'm doing fun stuff, you know, and I've got it's a great practice and interesting law, and it had a good purpose. 
about three or four months later, I get a call from John on Sunday, and he says, I was just, I just came from church. I saw Mike Ferris, and he said their litigation guy just turned in his notice, and they're looking for a guy <laughs> who can ah. do litigation, which is what I was doing. And so I emailed my uh, uh, resume to John that Sunday, and the rest is history, as they say. That was in 2001. Well, I know you are a great litigator because Mike Ferris told me that the first time um, he was he was introducing you to me. You weren't there over the phone telling me about this new litigator. Mm -hmm. And um, he told me about your law law enforcement background. He called you a tough cop, actually, is what he said. And that you were a great litigator. So, well, as you enter the presidency on the 40th anniversary, and I've been listening to your podcast with Mike Ferris and Mike Smith. It's really good. I just haven't had a chance to finish it. So I'll be I'll finish that later today. Um, tell us what your vision is. I mean, I've always heard when the founder or the founders, in this case of an organization, yeah. leave and a new president comes in, it sort of marks a new era for that organization. But I see this as such a seamless transition because of your heart and your background and your years at HSLDA. So what is your vision, Jim? Well, we live in interesting times, Anne. You know, the the history of homeschooling in America, beginning with, with your story, intimately involved, you know, you were, you were a really prime example of the fight for homeschool freedom in the early days involved state officials who basically just didn't think it was legal at all. Um, and so the early fights tended to be around um, state laws that required teacher certifications and things like that. And so the early days were kind of expanding the boundaries of freedom from it's widely thought to be illegal and maybe actually is illegal in many states to today it's unquestionably legal. Anybody, um, everybody knows they can homeschool if they want to, that it's a lawful opportunity. And um, so then in the middle of all that, so there's this big transition, um, now, but there's still, you know, there's lots and lots of homeschool families and... You know, there's, I think, 13,000 school districts in America, something like that. You'd be surprised how many, you know, state officials, school officials um, still want to kind of, you know, run roughshod over homeschooling families. And that crops That's up right. all over the country at different times. That's right. I see um, it all the time. Yeah. So that's a lot of what we do. But then this amazing thing happened. Um, you know, on the one hand, tragic, and on another hand, it's just changed the world uh, of education so much, and that was the, the COVID pandemic. And so what COVID did was, um, in, a, in a new way, brought so many more people into the ambit of private homeschooling that maybe never would have done that before. And so the, you know, the enormous growth amongst, uh, families who are homeschooling just over the last three years has created new opportunities and new challenges for, for us in the homeschooling world, including a lot of people, um, you know, who are now homeschooling. You'd be surprised how many people, so we did our job maybe too well. Um, a lot of people say, well, homeschooling is legal, so I'm just going to go homeschool without really realizing that there are yeah. still laws. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's right. That's right. So we help a lot of people get get their, uh, you know, if they skip a couple of steps, we help them uh, get back into line on the legal, you know, requirements. 
So you wrote this great article for the court report. I've got it right here. I've been, I mean, I've been dissecting it. I love the cover. So if you're watching this old video, you get to see the cover. Um, And it's called How a Haircut, a Hair in a News Bookstore Saved This Article. I love this article, Jim. You are an amazing writer. Um, And I don't say that loosely because I work for a publisher in Nashville and as an acquisitions editor. So I've seen a lot of bad writing. And this is really good writing. But you you talked about how HSLDA had 20,000 contacts in 2022. Now, is that contacts from families or legal contact stuff going on? Yeah. So um, as I as I say in the article, so we we get phone calls, emails and any any manner of communication, uh, any any means of communication, uh, people calling us either with questions or problems Um yeah, so so a lot of them are kind of more routine, just questions. Like so many of the new homeschoolers just really don't know um, what are the legal requirements and what does it mean that I have to keep a portfolio and that kind of thing. You know, s- simple sort of questions. Um, a big chunk of the kind of questions we get today, as the homeschooling movement has matured, and now homeschooled kids are homeschooling their kids. Um, there are still official. Uh, you know, employers and state officials who don't treat homeschool diplomas as valid. I mean, it's surprising. The joke that we've had here for years is that it's easier to get into Harvard than it is to get into hairology schools. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Now, it's a joke, but not a funny joke. It's not a funny joke. It's It's sort of a ridiculous joke, isn't it? it? It's true. And so a lot of trade schools um, don't don't uh, treat a homeschool uh, graduate as you know the same as they they tell you know fully uh, capable. We, we've had it's so ridiculous that we've had people who have actually completed the course of instruction and done really well, and they won't let them sit for the licensing test because their homeschool diploma. They need to get a GED to take the test for the class that they've done really well in. So we we still work on on those kind of questions a lot for homeschool graduates. And then we still get a fair amount of, you know, legal emergencies from these 13,000 school districts all over the country um, and CPS investigations that are, we're dealing with one right now. I just can't even believe that it's happening. Um, it, it, it's a, it's a, it's a, do you have a minute? <laughs> yes. Yes. I've got a minute. <laughs> so a mom from a different country, right? She lives in a different country is thinking about moving to one of our United States. And this United State um, has a homeschool law. So this mom from a different country writes to the school district where she's thinking about possibly moving to and says, I homeschool in my foreign country. And I'm just curious, what do I have to do if I move to your United State and want to homeschool? And she ended up deciding not to move, but the superintendent turned her into CPS for educational neglect because she never filed her homeschool paperwork. <laughs> and so we're dealing with a CPS investigation and they won't drop it. Zan, they won't drop it. We're up to we're up to supervisors and lawyers and they still won't drop it. And the, the woman lives in a different country. <laughs> oh, <she> okay. Has... <laughs> is, is, yes. And, and I did not your... make this up. No, I know. You can't make this stuff up. And I think in your article, you said there's something like 
Now, you, you monitor all these state agencies because you have to. I mean, our threat might not be like front door outlawing homeschooling, but they're always trying to come in on the periphery and just regulate us to death to make homeschooling so miserable nobody will want to do it. And boy, that's a great example. It's so ridiculous. Yeah, and it's such a waste of time for the officials and stressful. Well, our for, tax for, dollars at work, right? Right. right. Yeah. And, and you know, it's 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 sad to it's sad to me because we deal with less. You know, um, this one is obviously so you know egregious that it it just kind of baffles me. But but we deal with that on a regular basis, where um, you know we can in common sense world. It would be easy to resolve a lot of things, but in officialdom and bureaucraties talk, it's hard often to resolve, even easy to resolve things. And so we still deal with a lot of those kinds of issues all over the country. Um, another hey, big tell, issue. So go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, tell about the one in New York. I mean, this was fascinating for me to read about where you had the yeah. woman, you know, who they they totally messed up on her record keeping. And mm-hmm. then y'all ended up having some agreement where the New York City School Board or somebody had to report to y'all. Yeah, so this is in in New York. New York has a regulation for homeschoolers that was adopted before the invention of email. That's how antiquated it is. And so the regulation it, it's just it's just kind of stupid. I mean, it says if you want to homeschool, you've got to send your notice to the school district. Then the school district is supposed to send you a form. And it's all, you know, in the regulations, you, they, you mail in and they mail you back. And then you fill out your, your home education plan. And then you email or then you mail it back to the central office. And they have so much time to do stuff with it. And if, if um, you know, anyway, so New York City had long been kind of a prime example of a bureaucracy that didn't match the resources that it needed to deal with the uh, number of homeschoolers in that it was handling. And so what happened is uh, Tanya Acevedo, a single mom living in New York City on Manhattan, the island of Manhattan, um, wanted to homeschool. And so she withdrew her child in the middle of the year to homeschool. She went to the public school that he attended formally withdrew him. She turned, you know, she, she mailed off the right paperwork to the right people at the right time. And she gave a copy of that. The cent- So she had to mail it to the central office for homeschooling on 7th Avenue in Manhattan. I, we've dealt with it so often, I can tell you the address. <laughs> um, and she gave a copy to the school that her child had attended and and she had formally withdrawn him from, right? Uh, but the rules were that until the central office on 7th Avenue in Manhattan turned off the uh, attendance record of the child at the public school in the computer, the public school just kept marking the child absent. And so because the bureaucracy in at, at 7th Avenue was so behind, they didn't do their part. They were supposed to mail her back stuff, but they never did. So after 30 days, the school automatically counted the kid as habitually absent and turned her over to social services for educational neglect. So a a CPS investigator shows up at her apartment, even though she had done everything the law required of her and 
it was the central office of homeschooling in, on 7th Avenue in Manhattan that hadn't done what it was supposed to do. So we, we have been dealing with that for years and years and years. And most of the times it didn't turn into a big dramatic thing like this. But so they made two mistakes, right? They sent CPS out to her house and it was after hours. And I was the on-call after hours attorney that day. <laughs> and I, I don't know. I just said, we got to do something about this. And so we sued uh, then Mayor Bill de Blasio and all of the New York City public school bureaucracy and said, you guys got to fix this. You know, this should not have happened to this woman, um, you know, and, and it's happening to all these other people. So they um, uh, eventually ag agreed to a consent decree where um, they had to clean up their act. They had to provide more resources to the Central Office of Homeschooling and not turn people over to CPS who didn't deserve to be you know, turned over to CPS. And they had to report to us quarterly uh, for two years uh, to demonstrate that they were uh, in compliance with the order. So, yeah, so New York City has, you know, it's still, it's still kind of a mess and the old antiquated regulation still is in existence and it's, it's still not great, but they stopped doing what they did to Tanya. No, that is amazing. Thank you for listening to part one of our two-part episode featuring Jim Mason. Be sure to tune in next week to hear part two of our encouraging conversation. And as always, you can visit me at zantyler.com for more information. See you later.